G'day and welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs and, of course, CFRC, so thank you very much. Now, if you mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Julia Hale, who I was going to say is doing a Master of Education, but she's actually just defended. So congratulations, firstly, on that. And she's been supervised by Dr. Christy Timmons and Dr. John Kirby, and also had a lot of support from Dr. Stephen Scott, who's also on her committee too. So welcome to Grad Chat, Julia. Thank you. I'm always excited when I hear that one of our students has defended. And uh, despite, you know, sometimes it takes people a little longer than they want to, but at the end of the day, great job. Well done. Thank you. Another chapter finished. Yeah, it was exciting. It was an exciting day yesterday. Yeah, a lot of people get very scared. Were you scared in in the lead up to going in or are you just no, no problem because you know your work anyway? Yeah, I know my work and I because I did my degree part time, I got to sit with it for four full years. So I really feel like I have had that conversation already a number of times. So right. it was just a new way of doing it. So... Tell me a little bit about your background anyway, because you did just mention there you've done this master's degree part time, which instead of two years, then it's taken you four. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to do it part time? I mean, what else is going on in your life to make <laughs> you want to do it part time? Because most people try and get it done quickly as opposed to extend it. No, I actually thought I'm going to I'm going to milk it as long as I can because uh, I'm a full-time teacher. I teach with the Limestone District School Board at Kingston Secondary School. I signed up for the masters because I had a question that I wanted to answer and right. couldn't find a way to answer it and really found I actually tried on my own to do some research and investigation and without the resources of the university my access to information was really limited oh. so I actually went into it thinking I'm just going to milk this as long as I can so that I can keep my uh, my access to the community resources <laughs> to the university resources as long as I can but um, I think Alteria you have motors. yeah I think you have up to six years I didn't quite feel like I wanted to take that long so I did it in four that's fantastic so can I ask you what what do you teach in, in high school? Yeah, so I have two roles at Kingston Secondary School. Uh, my primary role is what's called learning program support, and I support students with learning differences, IEPs, and I am an advocate, and I do their paperwork, and I support them in their classes. Sometimes I support them out of their classes. Right. And then I also, in a year, teach two sections of Spanish, yeah, mostly because the Spanish teacher retired and I was actually just the only person in the school board that spoke enough Spanish to teach that class at that time. So <laughs> I sort of inherited it by default, but um, that's been a nice balance to my other work. So, Well, because it's interesting when you're looking later at your research topics you would get into, my first thought was, oh, you, you teach phys ed or mm -hmm. something like that. But no, mm -mm. no, it's more of the learning is it the physical or the mental? Um, mostly learning. I work with students with learning disabilities, autism, ADHD, and then also we have lots of students that have what we call an informal IEP, and they might need support for lots of reasons. Maybe right. they need support for mental health reasons, or usually we don't develop an IEP for uh, family circumstances, but if those carry on for years and years and really are interrupting the child's uh, school progress, then we might. 
yeah, so there could be lots of reasons why we might develop a different plan for a student. Does every school has have a teacher like you, mm-hmm. or are you just lucky? We just lucky here in no, Kingston. No, no, every school has a teacher like me. The number of teachers will depend on the number of students. Right. At KSS, there are three of us that do my job, and we share the course, the student load, the right. between us. So the number of teachers that do my job will depend on the number of students are at the school, and also the complexity of the school and how many students we have with special learning needs. But right, yeah. I'm really lucky to work with a team of three, and um, so it's it's nice. It's a really collaborative model. Because it's always one of those areas you wonder when when there's cuts in education mm-hmm. and thing, what gets cut first? And uh, that's yeah. always a concern when yeah. you think again uh, are the the ones that need a bit more help going to again be disadvantaged. But I'm glad to hear that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, no, and fingers crossed, right? We are an area that can be cut when there are educational cuts because I'm not responsible for a group of students. I don't, if I'm not there, no one is without a classroom Mm -hmm. teacher. But so far, so good. We're we're maintaining our... That's great. Mm -hmm. Good to hear. Yeah. Now, on top of that too, you're also a mum. Yep. So double whammy. Yeah. Full-time work, full-time mum. Part-time studies. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, can I, do you mind if I ask no, how course. old your kids are? No, uh, I have a son who's 13 and my daughter's 11. So when I started this process, they were nine and seven, I right. think. That's so right. need a bit more um, looking after from mm-hmm. mum along yeah. the way. So that can't have been easy. So how did you balance all three? I have maybe an advantage in that I went into the master's with a really clear thesis idea already before I even started. So as far as the thesis goes, I was really able to spread it out over the four years and Mm -hmm. started right away and just tailored all of the assignments that I did in all of my courses to the thesis. So I ended up doing the literature review and some of the data analysis as part of my coursework. Well, that's smart. It was a really big advantage, yeah, because I knew exactly where I wanted to head. So that was a real advantage. And the coursework I really enjoyed, it was interesting, actually, because sometimes in the evening courses, my younger colleagues would be complaining about the course load. And, and for me, I did one a semester, so it was one course in the evening. And it was just really a nice break from my responsibilities <laughs> as a parent. I got to go and hang out at the university in the afternoon and have dinner by myself and then talk to some adults and it was actually basically time out yeah it was really relaxing actually so I I can't say that the the coursework was a suffer um I I actually really enjoyed that part of it (laughs) miss it it was kind of a nice break sorry sorry kids mom's going to school yeah no and there was (laughs) nothing you know my husband had to make dinner and pick everybody up and manage because I couldn't be there. Yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed that part. So is this when you say that you're still studying and so they think you're still going off to school yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you can still have your own time out? <laughs> well, I did escape today for the afternoon, so we'll see how long I can milk it. <laughs> I love that because I always worry about our uh, students who are also parents trying to juggle their studies. I mean, it's one thing with their courses, but then the writing side mm. of it is, because you need to concentrate on that. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd, I mean, I don't like writing anyway, but I can imagine you need to stay on track. And if you yeah. lose your train of thought, hard to get back. Well, I, I took advantage. My children, uh, we limit screen time in our house, maybe not as much as I'd like, but um, my <laughs> children especially, <laughs> yeah, 
when the pandemic started, we sort of settled on two hours a day. And so my, my son gets two hours a day of Minecraft and his desk <laughs> is right beside mine. So I discovered uh. some noise canceling YouTube channels and I knew he's starting to play now and he has two hours. So that means <laughs> I have two hours. So in some ways it kind of kept me on track because I, I had a really specific timeline to work with. Oh, that's hilarious. I love it. And I guess the last part I want to ask about, you know, how you juggled everything and with your studies, how did you feel, did you always feel you were part of, say, the Queen's community when you are doing it part-time? So you only, uh, were your classes, I guess the last two years, that any classes were online, but mm -hmm. did you find you you still feel like you were part of the Queen's community in this, in this instance, for instance, the education faculty yeah. community? Yeah, I think so. It's one of the reasons I, because, of course, you can do, there are lots of options to do an online Masters of Education tailored around teachers working that people. are working. And I decided to do it in person, partly because I really wanted that community and right. felt like it was important to be able to go to things. I attended the online, you know, stats club and I, I made some effort to be involved in things, right. went to a couple of the socials, certainly wasn't in, as involved and joined a lab one like a, a study group. So I did make some effort to kind of connect to the community. You could certainly ride through the four years and, you know, not make that connection. So it does require a bit of effort on your part, but the right. opportunities are certainly there. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to hear because I'm trying to sort those things out. Mm -hmm. To me, building that community is really important, yeah. at least to get through. I mean, I know you've obviously had a very supportive family. Mm -hmm. Not all students have that, yeah. particularly some of our international students, of course, their families at home and right. they can't sort of fall back on them for support. So good to hear that. And and as you said, sometimes it's putting yourself in the situation and going, I need to make that effort. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, the, I These things are here, so let me make the effort. Yeah, had to reach out and join things. And, and, and a lot of, and I had to be careful because a lot of things that you join happen at, you know, one in the afternoon when right. I can't be doing them. But I was able to find enough things that sort of fit around my schedule to feel like I was connected to some people. That's good. So when you cross that stage in what day is it in October October then you can say I am part of this community yeah yeah, yeah which is great congrats yeah thank you I always get very excited yeah um, if people don't know me I get very excited on little things like that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess we should talk about your research because sure. that's really why we're here although the other stuff has been fascinating as well your research topic is called the connection between physical coordination and school success in high school students. So can you give me just a little bit of a, an overview of what you're doing in that before we get to some of these questions? Yeah, I mean, I think like many students, I went in with a big idea of what I was going to be able to do, and it got, you know, steadily smaller and smaller and smaller. But <laughs> yeah, that's it's a master's, not a, th not yeah, a PhD. Yeah, yeah, but that's the reality. Um, I was really uh, lucky, actually, in my first in the very first evening of my very first course, there was a fire alarm and I ended up talking to a colleague who was there studying, who, who was also a part-time student and a pediatrician. And um, she was doing her master's of education with the idea of, of supporting her work in, in a medical education. Anyway, she's, she said, that's really interesting. Of course, you know, what, 
the question you ask in graduate school. You say, hi, this is my name. What are you researching? So we got to that pretty we're so quickly. Pre- we're so predictable, yeah, aren't we? <laughs> we got to that really quickly. And uh, she said, oh, well, you have to talk to one of my colleagues at the hospital. And so I did. So that was really affirming for me because these were people that I had reached out to in the past and hadn't responded. And as soon as uh, I had an at Queen's U email uh, um, and there was a study attached to it, then I, I started getting responses, which was which was nice. Anyway, he recommended that I reach out to Dr. Stephen Scott, who is in the neurology department, and he is developing a, a robot assessment tool, which assesses upper body coordination. Uh-huh. And he very graciously did not delete an email from an education student completely outside of his outside of his area and reached out to one of the profs at the education department to say, you know, I've got this email. Do you think this sounds like a thing or viable? And they very graciously let me use their lab and attached me to one of a larger study that they already had in process. So we ran 39 high school students through their assessment of upper body coordination through the robotic assessment. And that pumps out a huge amount of data, which took lots of filtering through. And then I also collect a number of like cognitive and reading scores and then the grade data and uh, standardized testing data from their Ontario student record. And then just looked to see if we could find any sort of correlation, a correlation mostly correlation. I was try- yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Why? Because <laughs> so what if you got, for instance, good upper body strength and things, does mm-hmm. that really affect your learning So um, unless you're doing something physical? Yeah. The reason I s- started this whole process is because in every single year that I support and I support a whole school year of, mm-hmm. of students with learning disabilities, I there is always a group, usually of boys, who have previously diagnosed ADHD or learning disabilities, who in their intelligence testing come out as average to high intelligence. Um, but they're doing very, very poorly in school, and they all have terrible handwriting. Oh. And so a number of years ago, I started to look into this connection, and there have been lots of people that have asked that question. Why is it that a large number of students with learning differences also struggle with their coordination? And I thought it was really under-researched. It turns out once I knew where to look, there were actually <laughs> lots of people asking the same question. Well, that's good. Yeah, which You've was good. You've all got the same thought. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah, precisely, uh, if you look in the literature really carefully and there are people that are looking at it, 50% of students with a learning difference, whether you look at students with autism, ADHD, or a learning difference, will also qualify for a diagnosis of developmental coordination disorder, which is basically oh. clinical clumsiness that never goes away. I've, you know what? I've never heard of that no. before. And, and it's not something that no, you and think they would look for. It was no. hard enough for them looking for autism and, and, yeah. and, and groups like that. And, and I had never heard of it, and I've worked in special education for 20 years and never had a student with this diagnosis, despite the fact that about 5% of them would qualify if we were testing for it. So it's clumsiness. So they're not... Because I remember going through primary school and everything. I mean, learning how to write was mm-hmm. super, super important. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we used pencils. Yeah. And then we were allowed to move on to the ink pen. Yeah. The ink well and yeah. stuff. Biros were, and a then, big, biros were a big no-no. And then cursive, which was always big news. Yeah. Yes. Well, we were only allowed to do that after mm-hmm. we learned the, the first part. And the only one, for instance, my own friends at the time, the only ones that struggled with that, who they were left-handed and were told to write with their right hand, mm-hmm. which um, hopefully that doesn't happen anymore. No, <laughs> no it doesn't. Because <laughs> they're the ones that used to write the hardest on the pages mm-hmm. to try and get that control. But no one else really sort of talked anything about control of, of writing. Yeah. 
And, and then I guess the next question is, is that even important these days with all computers? So many kids know how uh, uh, typing as yeah. opposed to writing. Writing is potentially going to become a lost form. Yeah. <laughs> so you can qualify for gross motor challenges or fine motor challenges, either or both. And that's a question, right? So when we accommodate for children that are struggling with writing, we provide them with a computer, we provide them with a scribe, they use text-to-speech right. software. We have lots of way of bypassing the writing. What I'm finding anecdotally and what's showing up in the research is that a lot of those students, despite the accommodations, will still not be doing well. Oh, okay. Even though their, their intelligence and their capacity to learn, according to the testing, should be fine, there still, still seems to somewhere. be a barrier. And that's, so that's the question. If there's such a high comorbidity between coordination difficulties and difficulties with learning, can one affect the other? Or does it help us to understand where to look for other things? Well, are the other tests correct? There's often conversations about IQ tests really testing yeah. the intelligence. So are those tests correct and, and testing the right things? I will say that I've read probably a thousand of them. <laughs> and worked really closely with the children who are attached to them. Right. And I find that they're very accurate. Usually okay. if I read the if I read the report, a full psychoeducational assessment, and then meet the child, I very, very rarely I can't think of a single case actually right. where I felt that the test didn't really represent the child's capacity pretty clearly. Well, that, well, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. So then now it's, I guess it's a process of elimination. Yeah. Like you said, where is that difference then? If, if all things being equal, really they should be able to, mm -hmm. but something else is happening. So what have you found? So in my own research, uh, I don't know, I think like lots of masters, I learned lots of things, but not <laughs> a ton from my actual data besides how to collect data, which right. was very useful. Um my own data did show a mild correlation between some coordination tasks and some learning tasks. Which were? Uh, specifically, one of the kinarm tasks is called ball on bar, and you, you hold an imaginary handle. It's a robotic assessment. So there are right. two handles. You hold them. There's a flat screen, and on the screen is projected um, some objects that you have to interact with. It's kind of like a video game, right. like playing Wii a little bit. And so ball on bar, you hold the two bars. You have an imaginary ball There's a or a bar. There's a ball balanced on it, and you have to move the ball from point A to point B as accurately and as quickly as possible. Well, it turns out, according to my very small population set, that that's actually quite a good predictor for both being able to read numbers quickly and being able to read words quickly, which are both oh. also very predictable predictors of reading success. How did you predict that from moving your arms? Well, that's the question, right? <laughs> so if there's a 0 0.506 correlation between... Mm -hmm. um, both arms having to work together to move a ball from point A to point B and your ability to read sight words. Is it more to do with the eye? Like there's hand-eye hand coordination yeah. for certain skills. Yeah. And then the eye looking at those things and how quickly it can read it. Yeah. Like, in, I need to move my arms there. In the literature, there's probably two. Nobody knows yet, right? Yeah. We know there's a connection and that connection keeps showing up in every kind of literature and testing that's done no one has any clear idea of why there are two possibilities that show up again and again one is that neurologically they're just happening in the same part of the brain right. so the part of your brain that does attention and the part of your brain that does handwriting are the same so if that okay. part of your brain is weak then you're going to have a hard time with 
attention and you're going to have a hard time with handwriting. Right. And the other possibility is that it probably has more to do with what's called automatization, which that is a word, a word I word. always struggle with. <laughs> you did yeah. that one. So well. I just have to I won't, do it slow. I won't repeat it. <laughs> automatization, <laughs> which is basically the the ability of your brain and your your neurological pathways to get used to doing something so well so it that, automatic. that it becomes automatic. You don't have to think about it. So if you're not good at that, then writing will be hard because at some point you should stop having to think about how to make the letter B so that then you can make the letter B with lots of other words in a word. And eventually you should stop having to think very much about how to write the word bank so that you can understand what bank means in a sentence. And then the same thing with movement. You, when you start walking, anybody that's watched a baby start walking, at the beginning they concentrate really hard and they kind of toddle along and you can see they can't really do anything else. They're yeah, just, like yeah, just doing walking. Yeah, mm. pure concentration. And then eventually you should stop having to thinking about walking at all and then you can start to look around you and, and see what else is happening. But if your body isn't, if your body and your brain are not good at that, automatization (laughs) at getting used to doing something over and over again, then there's always holding quite a lot of cognitive load. So you have to think about those things, which means there isn't much brain power left to do things like comprehension or not knocking into things. So does this mean, because you're testing high school, Mm -hmm. does this mean this is function of what wasn't done in primary school? I, I mean, because in primary school, it was a, 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 yeah. A, B, B, B. The thing is that they all had those, inter- like everybody learned how to do that and everybody had reading interventions and we do a lot of reading interventions with kids when they're small. And the few longitudinal studies that there are, are saying that, n- no, it doesn't go away. It's not that you can. If you've always I, got, if it's there, it's always there. It's there. Now, I, I think, based on what we know about brain plasticity and learning, that, yeah, you could train it out, but right. it's going to be hard work and it's going to take longer than it might for someone for whom their brain and body just have that connection naturally laid down. So we had this conversation yesterday, actually, quite a bit in the defense and and you know, well, you're testing, I tested high school students because that's what I had in front of me. I, mm-hmm. I had a first period prep period. And so I did recruitment <laughs> during my first prep. It was a total <laughs> convenience sample because that's where I was. Um, and could, would it have made more sense in elementary school? Maybe. But I think it's interesting that it didn't go away. And mm-hmm. um, if we did elementary school, would we find the same results? Well, that's a big question for later, maybe. And that's where you need one of those longitudinal studies, yeah. right, to be able to see the, the development as they go through. Mm-hmm. But it also, to me, it would also, with that, as we may have a good education system here in the Limestone District School Board, but is it, are other places similarly good moving through elementary school through to high school? Well, and you can't fix everything in the mm-hmm. first three years. There just isn't enough hours in the day. These are students... Right who are struggling with school, so they struggled with reading, which means they had reading interventions. If they're being pulled out of class an hour a day to have reading interventions, is there time in their day to pull them out for an hour a day to do occupational interventions? And at some point, you have to prioritize. Get them to be able to keep moving forward. But also, if you stop doing interventions, if you stop telling them or even talking to them about improvements at grade three and just start accommodating, then they kind of get stuck there. So... Yeah, so what's, what is the happy medium? Because we want we want children to have an opportunity to have a good education. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, we want to be able to assist them along the way to have all options possible put mm-hmm. forward. So if they want to go to college or university or into the workforce, mm-hmm. they can and feel confident in going. Yeah. 
so when I guess my two questions there would be is how early can we pick this up? And then secondly, if we are picking it up, what's the next steps? Because yeah. if you know about it, that's great. But then what? Yeah. So that's a woof. That's a whole other can yeah. of fish, isn't it? The A lot of the research is talking about it as an opportunity to do a really early diagnosis of potential learning disabilities because the coordination issues show up much younger than even we start to teach children to read. Okay. So in most of the research that I read was done with early elementary because you can diagnose developmental coordination disorder when they're four or five okay. before they even start to read. And if 50% of those students that are discoordinated clinically will also have a learning challenge, then that might be an initial, an early red flag. For me, as a high school teacher, I struggle with the fact that by high school, we kind of start using language like, it's just like that, or you're just wired that way. And what we know about brain plasticity is that that's actually not true. You can change the way your brain is wired at any point in your lifetime. It's easier at certain points, but mm -hmm. it actually never finishes. So I always said when I went into this research, even if all I do is stop saying to children, you're just wired like that and start saying there are things that we can do to make that better. Right. If all I have is the information to say that with, you know, really mean it because I have the proof, <laughs> yes. then even just that change in mindset is a huge step forward. Um, for, for students and, and for future adults who can see themselves as someone who can continue to learn. In my work as a teacher, I do a lot of, of, of course selection and career counseling. It's one of the things that's part of my job. And I, I do think we're getting really good in the public system at finding a pathway for each kid. And there are tons of options. There are yes. lots and lots of different ways to graduate high school now. And I think we are getting really good at that. Um, I, I would like to also be able to say, here's an interesting pathway, and here's also a pathway to one that you might not have considered or you might not have seen possible for yourself. Right, right. Makes total sense. I remember when I was growing up, my, my brother left high school at 16. He wasn't interested. He mm -hmm. didn't want to go to university, so he did an apprenticeship, suited him down to the ground. Yeah. My, my other sister went on to nursing school but had to go through, you know, what you call it, year 11 and 12 mm -hmm. and stuff. So, yes, everyone is is different. My, my other question, I guess, it, to me is always something that comes forward is feasibility of assessing. Mm -hmm. uh, you had the luxury of the kin arm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Schools aren't going to have access no. to that. So if you didn't have that kin arm, yeah. could you still figure out which students have DCD, like Developmental DCD. Coordination Disorder. Thank you. Um, so it turns out, yes, again, that's another one of those things that I went into this process thinking I need to find out how to do this, and I don't think anyone knows. And it turns out the physiotherapists have been doing it for 50 years. They know, right? they know exactly how to test for this sort of thing, and there's oh. a standardized assessment that's used that just isn't part of our battery of assessments within a psychoeducational assessment for the school. It's just not being done. And so I guess my bandwagon to jump up and down on is this is is an, I think, a really important part of a learning profile mm -hmm. that we're ignoring in the public school system. If you have access to private physiotherapy, and lots of families do, those that have access to private physiotherapy, will hire a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist to work with their child who has a learning disability. And often it makes a huge difference. But 
those services are private medical services that right. aren't available to a lot of people. And because we're not testing for it in the public schools, we also don't have any interventions in the public schools. So I think a 50% comorbidity is really high. I, I actually don't know exactly, but I would bet it's higher than socioeconomic status and higher than nutrition and higher than trauma and higher than lots of things that right. also affect these sorts of disorders. So if it is such a high comorbidity, we just shouldn't be ignoring it. So it kind of makes me think, and I'm sorry I keep going back to my own childhood because mm-hmm. I know it's a long time ago and things have hopefully changed, but you 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 were talking about OTs and, and physios and things, which if you have the funds or mm-hmm. even to even ask that question, is this something then that for the educational system has to become one of those tests in the beginning? I remember they used to come in and test our ears. Mm-hmm. They test our sight. Yeah. Uh, at an early age, this was in elementary school, yeah. so that if there was an issue, straight away, and that stage I was still in the UK, you know, the, the public health system there would then slap on a pair of glasses. Yep. Is this a battery of those sorts of tests that should be right in, in the beginning, but not just at the start, but several times along the way? Because is this something that could pop up later, or is it always early? That's hard to say because the longitudinal tests start with children and then follow those same children. The general feeling, I think, in in what I've read from the medical profession is that, yeah, if, if a person is clinically discoordinated, they will be for their whole life. So you're right. not likely to appear later. So I think you could test early. And yeah, I do think it should be part of the battery of tests. And I think I read an interesting study actually from the UK, and they talked about the switch when physicians stopped being part of the decision makers around school readiness, that in the Uh 30s and 40s, your family doctor was one of the people that said, yes, your child is ready or not for kindergarten. And then we bypassed them and just put everybody in kindergarten when they were four or five. But when we did that, we stopped looking at physical readiness as part of the equation to say whether or not they were ready for formal education. So and it is coming back. I will say this year in the Limestone District School Board, the elementary schools had an on-site occupational therapist, I think three days a week, right. who just came. Not You didn't have to fill out a bunch of paperwork. You didn't mm-hmm. have to request. They just were there and part of the team. So I think it is shifting. People are starting to realize that children learn and adults learn with their whole bodies mm-hmm. and not just sitting in a chair and staring at screens and using their brains. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm hopeful that there's a shift coming. Well, I, I'm really pleased to hear that because my, my one thing that's always worried me about how education is going now is the students are going more to, and of course the educators are doing this, more things online, Yeah, using the computer, um, you know, even formulas. It's just plugged in and are they really thinking about the, the parts of the formula, mm-hmm. what each part means, and the writing. Yeah. Um, some students' writing I've seen is absolutely atrocious. Yeah. and And I that used to always be put aside to doctors writing prescriptions, not yeah. not a, not a, a normal, not a student in in the school system. So I was always concerned that some fundamentals are getting lost because of more technology. Yeah. However, in this case, it seems like the technology has kind of helped us understand a certain area that yeah. we can potentially develop more. Yeah, I mean, it's always, it's a tricky balance in education, right? Because it's so complex. And one of the challenges I had in my research was defining what school success is anyway. Well, how do you even, yeah, yes. how do you even say that this child is more successful in school or not? And what, what formulas do you use? It's really complex. But 
I think I just keep coming back to the fact and the reason I went into the master's is we have a pretty good handle on what reading interventions look like and we have a pretty good handle on what mathematical interventions look like and we're getting even decently good at mental health interventions but we have nothing for coordination for coordination which is interesting too because we used to go through those coordination exercises throwing a ball Mm -hmm. running uh, catching yeah those sorts of things that that was fundamental in in elementary school and you spent five years learning to handwrite i mean you you spent five years 20 minutes a day sitting with your workbook tracing the letter B and tracing the letter B and tracing the letter B. And not that that particular skill is necessary, but maybe we've lost something when we don't dedicate time Time. to that. And it doesn't need to be handwriting. It could be needlepoint or cutting or coloring or, but that kind of really like fine, fine motor coordination. And the same with the gross motor coordination. We, We accommodate for children in the phys ed classes that aren't good at those skills. And that's important because not everybody's going to be a basketball player, but we we have taken time away from those gross motor skills to make time for reading and arithmetic. But what if we're actually shortchanging reading and arithmetic by not training the brain to to, to make those connections? Make those awesome. It's been really fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I think education is is fascinating in general because I love to learn, and as you can probably tell that, and. I think it's great that you came back to school to answer a question that you had. Clearly, it's been part of your workforce or work um, profile anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's great. So are you now going to go back and perhaps yeah. put some of this forward? Yeah, I actually, I've convinced the phys ed teacher to let me screen the entire grade nine class as part of their fitness screening. So <laughs> I have to come up with a quick screener and then I'll just keep track of it for my own curiosity to see right. what happens. Your school could be like a pilot school. Yeah, we'll see. I, you know, I think after finishing my master's, my dreams of changing the world are a little bit more realistic than they were four years ago. But um Certainly, I'm still really interested in the topic well, and not scra- letting it go. You've itched or scratched the itch of that curiosity yeah. of that question. And so congratulations again for, one, doing that while still working and being a mum and also congratulations on defending your thesis. Thank you. Awesome. And thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, and sharing that. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Fantastic. Okay, everyone, that's it. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.